Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Give me your fucking money. Woo, woo. <laughs> <laughs> bit of Wonga. A bit of fucking yeah. Bit of cheddar. Send a bit of cheddar our way. <laughs> yeah, we've all lost our fucking minds apparently. <laughs> so give us money so we can restore it. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> thanks for listening. Imagine that's just how we yeah, no. All right, good money, thanks. Uh, thanks for putting up with uh, all of the types of music that we talk about. Uh, Never this more one. so than this week. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, but it is interesting. It's very um, interesting. So yeah, you can uh, help us keep going. Go to Patreon.com/slash/UnsungPod and you can sign up uh, to support us. Yeah, we've got lots of different tiers for membership. Um, we can start from as little as two dollars. Uh, we appreciate all the money that we get because it helps us make this show better. We may have some exciting news in the future. We might not. I mean, we say that all the time and we never have it. But we're definitely going to get t-shirts made, right? I mean, that's definitely going to happen. Yeah. You just... <laughs> yeah. Please make it happen. <laughs> the exciting news is we might have exciting news. Yeah. Okay. That's t-shirts. Uh, yeah. But thanks for that. Uh, and enjoy this episode. Let's it's, uh, carry on. It was a bit of a slog. <laughs> Alright, lads. Alright, mate. How's your father? <laughs> Apples and pears. I was just... Oh, I can't do it. I don't know if you guys are taking this seriously. <laughs> do, um, do you even take I'm, it seriously themselves? Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm paying this... No, no, do you know what? It is a very interesting historical, cultural... Artifact. Uh, artifact. It is, yes. It's... It's the kind of thing that could only have happened when the world was at relative peace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were um, talking about the the years that um, the end of history. Yeah. as uh, Mister, what's his name? Fukuyama. Yeah, Fukuyama said when yeah. uh, everything was going to be fine. Who and thought boring. he was, who'd, who'd have known that he was talking about blur? Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that's us. We've peaked. Uh, the, the, the British music sure has. Uh, <laughs> so we're talking about Britpop this week and. Yeah. Very probably next week. 
uh, because <laughs> I mean, there's a lot to get through. Yes. And, you know, even though I think it's fair to say we enjoy this music mm. less than some of the others that we've covered in our mixtapes, I don't think it would be cool for us to like skim by it. Like it didn't mean a lot to a lot of people and it did. And, you know, there are definitely loads of interesting elements that, that rose to the surface when we were looking at this. So, yeah, I mean, let's let's do it justice, albeit maybe at times a bit reluctantly. Um, it's like visiting your gran, you know? Yeah. <laughs> right, right, that's 15 minutes, can I go yet? <laughs> I, uh, first of all, how are you, Chris? Uh, you appear to be. We all, we all, we all did something very special for the the podcast to, to make it exceptional today. David bleached his hair, and it fucking looks really good. It does. Uh, it looks really good. Um, he looks a bit like uh, the American Nightmare. He actually does. A little Cody Rhodes, mate. Cody Rhodes. Yeah, I, was, yeah. I was going for the uh, singer from Scooter vibe. <laughs> actually, yeah, <laughs> there is a fair bit of that. Yeah. Um, Mark got an extremely painful tattoo from the sounds of it yeah. that is really taking up a lot of his bandwidth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Got my elbow done, which uh, right on the fucking tip of that is not a fun experience. Not, it's, it's not a fun experience. Uh, it's swollen as fuck right now. And um, not to be outdone, I got what is easily one of the worst hangovers of the last decade. Um, so it's pop. Yeah, so I am firing on at least half a cylinder, but that's sort of appropriate because <laughs> <laughs> so was music. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Sh- shall we? All right, let's dive in. Let's. Who's that couple marching? You should cut down on your pork life, mate. Get some exercise. Right, so we, there was a lot of like reluctant gurning from all of us when we acknowledged that yeah we do have to do this and we've spoken about it and we have to do more than just say it's fucking shit. Man, um, actually start with the word ugh. Yeah, uh, uh, appropriate. Uh. Um, but one of the key things for us discussing this was what it's not and establishing what it's not. So let's let's deal with that shit first, okay? Because Britpop is not just British pop. It's a specific time and movement in British pop. We, we certain people actually credited for that. We'll, we'll touch on that later on. But uh, before, like, Brit, Brit pop is seen as being 92 to 97, really. There was a lot of the bands that were big in it were about before that, and a lot of the mm-hmm. bands that uh, rose to prominence during it, it continued after it. A band like Radiohead, for example, mm-hmm. we're, we're going to talk in the bands that we've excluded from this, a bit like we did with Deftones and the New Metal mixtape. Um, but 92 to 97 was sort of the peak time and I think 94 to 95 was like the peak of the peak that, that yeah. was that was the, that was when it was huge yeah, it was just on TV mainstream right media, right. media. Yeah, exactly mm-hmm. yeah uh, so what that isn't for example is Madchester it's it's not that scene it's not certainly not the Smiths uh, and it's not even bands like James or the Laz. Ride is probably too too early for it. Yeah, um, it's it's definitely not Stone Roses. Uh, 
Although all of these bands had a huge oh, a influence. Ma- massive influence. Well, it depends. Like some of the playlists about Britpop have James and all that. Oh, yeah. It, I mean, you know, James um, did really well during the period of Britpop. But they'd been about for fucking ages. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Prior, mm-hmm. You know, and, and what I, I think you, there's two parts of what Britpop is, and it's a musical genre, but it's also a sort of cultural phenomena. Yeah. See, I'm actually going to take some issue with the musical genre part of it because the music's very different. It's all, yeah, it's, it's I mean, oh, fair enough. Grunge had an aesthetic, right? And Britpop yeah. does have a a, lo- a much larger fashion based aesthetic. Yeah, but none of the no two bands sound the same. Well, oh, no, two. There's definitely a few. Uh, bands. I mean, the, the really, the really big ones who are like, like counted counts count as being like the the, the forefather, like the most popular ones, like Blood and Oasis, like Cast and Suede and all that. Like, yeah, they all sound quite different from each other. Yeah, but I think I think what's interesting is I think that you can probably think of a definitive Britpop sound, and then it's very different from the bands that were huge in the Britpop culture. Mm-hmm. And for me, like a definitive one for me there is Oasis. Because I think Oasis totally categorised Britpop in the eyes of of the media. The whole Oasis versus Blur thing was what got it. The you know the front pages and the you know medium pages and the back pages. Um, but Oasis, the back pages, the, the sports section. Yeah, they were in the fucking sports section <laughs> hanging around. Fucking, you had like Vindaloo and fucking you know yeah, all that shit. You so. know, like Liverpool in their white suits. That was a total Britpop moment. Washington um, uh, But Oasis were much more just like classic indie rock rock and roll band i wouldn't i wouldn't have them as one of the defining sounds of britpop even though they're one of the defining bands i think it's way more stuff i think blur sweat pulp elastica and pulp Mm. are like your main four your go-to and then bands work around that with the jangly sort of kinks influence stuff yeah the jam influence stuff can i I just say mark made a, a funny little deviation there and i don't want to lose it because he mentioned posh and becks Posh wasn't even a thing. I know. Totally. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, I know. Uh-huh. Imagine thinking back to a glorious time in our history yeah. when Posh Spice wasn't a thing. Mm-hmm. But the Spice Girls play a significant role in Britpop in that they sort of heralded the end of Britpop. Mm-hmm. Um, 97, we wannabe. Mm-hmm. Which is crazy. That, 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 that's when that was. But um, The big bands, though, had started to move on by this point. Like Blur, for example, they, they released an album which was not a Britpop record. Yeah. And... If you could, if you could argue that they hadn't, you could probably argue they hadn't done that for a while, really. Anyway, mm-hmm. and uh, and then Robbie Williams had left, take that, and released a Britpop album. Mm. But you know, mm-hmm. he was like the boy band, going, "Oh, I'm going to try this out and be cool." And just by doing that, he made it uncool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So I mean, they're also not teenage fan club, for example. Um, it was interesting. I found one called uh, "You've Got um, Cool Britannia." Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was Cool Caledonia. <laughs> was that a thing? <laughs> as Jesus. well, they tried to kind of market this kind of Scottish movement, and 
in great indie bands around about the same time under something it never took yeah. as most crap Scottish I mean what would you had you'd have had Teenage Fan Club Edwin uh, Collins Edwin maybe Biss and then I don't know Primal but, Scream yeah Primal I mean Primal Scream were a definitive band in the development of this genre mm. I think a lot of people saw Screamadelica as hugely influential and loaded as well because it fused that sort of dance acid house stuff of Manchester and then took a whole indie sensibility to it and it was what what's interesting is we'll maybe talk about it is like in terms of the music I, I, there was an interview uh, and one of the guys I think he was involved in the in fact do you know what it was Danny Rampling the DJ and he said that this is the first time in a long time that white guys were getting up to dance Whereas in the eighties, white guys were going to the pub and getting drunk and watching football, mm-hmm. and this was the you know and this was songs I, about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but um, it was like a fusion of and like when he says guys, he means like mainstream guys, mm-hmm. not your guys that were going to raves in the late eighties. Mm-hmm. This had taken that rave culture to the indie dance floor and to the pub, and people were dancing to you know Blur. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the the Cool Caledonia thing came slightly after, and I think they tried to kind of group bands like Travis into it, things like that as well. Uh, um, another thing, it's not which is is that which is like post Britpop, for want of a better phrase, which is sort of Stereophonics, Travis Feeder, Coldplay, Star Sailor. Yeah, who are undoubtedly one of the worst bands to ever emerge in Britain. Why right. not Stereophonics? Uh, Their first album's basically an Oasis record. No, it's not. Not at all. I stereophonic. See, this is a thing that I th- think we've got to define, and uh, maybe next week or in part two of this, we'll talk about your record. Was at the same time as Britpop, or maybe a little bit later, there was Brit Rock, mm-hmm. and I think there's a there's a definite crossover, mm-hmm. but there's also that's absolutely a, true a definition. Uh, and I think Stereophonics at what for their first two records were more Brit Rocky. They were indie, but they weren't like upbeat jangly mm. like the sort of yeah like so this this is going to be an issue anyway because at the end of this episode we've all picked as we normally do one album each that we think is a sort of not even necessarily unsung they're very prominent albums but we just think is one of the, the most totemistic examples of the genre uh and the sound and maybe its influences on under acknowledged in some way i think stereophonics are more brit rock I, I, I definitely disagree with you that the first album sounds like Oasis. I was actually a big fan of the first Stereophonics album. I was young, and it does. And, and actually, I was a really big fan. I'm a fan of the first Oasis album. I still think it's an excellent record, mm-hmm. but um, they definitely don't sound like that. They were much more of an American sort of mor grunge band with a big thick voice and all this kind of stuff. It was it was much more transatlantic than Oasis, which was very British, uh, and and the playing was very Beatlesy. Stereophonics didn't sound Beatlesy at all. Um, yeah, so it's not that. And and kind of sandwiched in the middle, we've got bands like uh, Elbow and Keen that came in the sort of no man's land. Uh, and then there was a the second wave of Britpop, which undoubtedly was enabled 
but at least got its sense of identity by looking back at the original Britpop, and that was people like Kaiser Chiefs, Razor Light, Maximal Park. The Arctic Monkeys, who have actually been about a long fucking time now, mm-hmm. uh, Block Party, Editors, uh, those kind of bands. There was a second movement, and I think it tried to rally around that spirit that united the first movement, uh, and I think it probably worked to some extent. Um, and Dave, you mentioned the likes of the Kinks being a big influence in these bands. I think there's a set of artists that, if you're trying to find something to unite them, a lot of them seem to have taken influence from a, a certain group of musicians, and that's people like... Obviously, the Beatles were a massive influence on a lot of these bands. Yeah. Um, but you've got people like the Small Faces. Uh, you've got XTC. Who were a huge influence yeah, in a lot of the sure. bands. Yeah. Um, you got the Jam, who were a massive influence in them for the look as well. Because uh, there was a modish thing, especially coming through like Oasis and bands like Northern Uproar and all those kind of bands that kind of <laughs> resuscitated kind of zombie mod thing that yeah. had going on. And then you also had bands like Wire, who will be significant because especially when we talk about Elastica uh, and even T-Rex and David Bowie. Mm-hmm. Um, Bowie's a big influence throughout his many yeah. phases as well. Yeah, Very much um, so. kind of curious as well. And, like, uh, and also then obviously Manchester. With you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, going yeah. from the Smiths and then all Stone the, Roses yeah, and Spiral Carpets, all yeah, those guys Happy had Mondays. a big influence on and them, the yeah. Kinks as well. And uh, I mean, uh-huh. Oasis, like No Gallagher toured as a roadie with Spiral yeah. Carpets. He was that's where he first got involved in the scene. There's a few bands we've kind of exempted from the chat. Um, as I said, it's a bit like we did with Deftones in the new metal one because we kind of felt, first of all, Deftones were just another step better than a lot of the kind of mulch of new metal. Uh, but they had such a distinct sounding career outside of the genre. They didn't need the genre to be a band necessarily. Uh, so I think Radiohead. We don't really discuss Radiohead because Radiohead are, if anything, bigger than Britpop now. Yeah, you know they're so fucking huge, and mm-hmm. it, it does them a total disservice, regardless of your opinions on their albums. It does them a total disservice to try and take something as diverse and experimental as that and cram it into this niche just because at one point they happen to be geographically in the same place. Yeah. Um, we don't really talk about a band that I fucking really love, and I think debatably were the best band of the era was Ash uh, from from Northern Ireland. I'd swithered about choosing 1977, but I think 1977 is the best album to come out of that time in terms of just a lot of different elements, and I'd maybe like to leave that for another day. Yeah, and I just... I think it's kind of similar to placebo as well and it's a bit more brit rock exactly less yeah. indie less jangly yeah so placebo is another one placebo is such a good band as mm-hmm. a band so different it, purely by virtue of their location can kind of be lumped in with this but i don't think it, it's particularly helpful in in trying to understand the group because first of all two of them are from sweden uh, but the music was just so much more interesting and, and unusual than than most of this um yeah and i mean i guess who else is there anyone else uh, yeah well I mean on a lot of the compilations now looking back and at the time running parallel with a lot of the indie music was the dance music scene of the 90s mm-hmm. um, and trip hop that's why Primal Scream are a funny one as well because they always sort of yeah, swung absolutely. back and forth they had that like really <clears throat> odd kind of like straddling 
of yeah. like indie and electronic. And then bands like Chemical Brothers and The Prodigy were hugely like part of the cultural scene, if not the musical scene. Although they were playing, you know, the same festivals and mm-hmm. uh, Basement Jacks sort of as well. Thing. Basement Jacks, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And then you even had, you know, a bit of the the trip hobby stuff like Massive Attack and stuff like that. Were doing things at the same time. Yeah, I think with stuff like The Prodigy and Chemical Brothers, it's way more of a it's a concurrent scene to Britpop. Uh, and definitely seen as part of the cultural mid nineties British thing, but uh, musically yeah. not really on the same. Although with Chemical Brothers, you had Noel Gallagher and what's his name, Richard Ashcroft, made appearances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely cross pollination. Cross pollination, yeah. but Fatboy well, Slim being another big one. Well, definitely, and he'd mm-hmm. been a member of the House Martins, were were a big sort of indie pop band. Yeah. Now the children of the world can see This is a better place for us to be The place in which we were So I mean, Britpop, I mean, it was, I I think the AV Club described it well in a kind of soundbite, which is a minor media creation that grew into a major cultural movement, Um, but also a, a brand Really, it, it it was a sort of marketing initiative, totally, as yeah. much as anything, a way to sort of consolidate uh, a sort of loosely affiliated group of of acts that were kind of around about the same time, and it wouldn't really have con- congealed, I don't think, without like a heavy push and a sort of sense of like purpose on the part of the media, and you know the print media, especially at the time, it it was a very pivotal era in print media. Uh, the the internet had arrived, although it was very young. And they were maybe, I mean, they, they were still somewhat spoiled, I think, by the by the need of the public to refer to them, to get trends, to kind of stay on top of things. And that kind of comes through in the kind of attitude of the media at the time. We actually used a couple of NME reviews uh, last week. And that condescending, snotty, arrogant voice that the NME seemed to just have, mm-hmm. like woven into its general image. Yeah. It, it was a, a, the result of a, a, an embarrassment of riches. It was a result of being this key arbiter of taste in, in a marketplace that didn't have any other alternatives. You know, if you wanted to read about music, you had to get one of the main music magazines. So the likes of NME, Melody Maker, Kerrang! were incredibly powerful at that time in, yeah. in how much they could influence. And and there were, thus they were inc- incredibly important to the record labels who had to keep them on side. So these journalists were able to get away with fucking murder. Yeah, and they're all based in London and they're all going out and taking loads of coke at big parties, basically deciding what is cool in Britain at that point. Um, But what's interesting is, yeah, I wonder if there was just a fucking party, you know, back in 1992 where they decided America had been taking over the world for, you know, 18 months with grunge. And I bet you, you know, a bunch of these English record label bosses and magazine editors and stuff were like, fuck, we should... <laughs> try and do something with it, you know. We need to counteract this. I don't know. Well, I think, um, it, was it not like Stuart McConey <clears throat> in 1993 was the first one to use the term in relation to this group of bands? Yeah, whereas there was a guy, a guy called John Robb in the late 80s, had used it, but more generally. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he always claims that he he 
invented it but I think he was using it in a much broader sense of British pop just abbreviated whereas McConey was really referring to this new movement um, there was a famous cover of a magazine called Select which is now you know gone yeah one of the many that have you yeah. know because there was Bold. although the face has come back I think but yeah there was but Melody Maker Vox uh, yeah Vox yeah. and Select was a huge one yeah and yeah it had this one of the two bands that are sort of seen as really coining the sound of Britpop in 92 were Blur and Swed. Yeah. And this this cover had Brett Swed Anderson. on the front. Yeah, Brett Anderson. Brett Anderson, like the first Britpop star, really. A sort of androgynous, sexy, British lad. Floppy-shirted guy. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, they're, they're actually a band I had a bit of time for. They've got a couple of really good songs, Swed. But um, yeah, in April 93, he appeared on the, against the backdrop of Union Jack. Oh, the cover said something like... Yanks go home. Yanks go home. That's that's what mm-hmm. it was, and it talked about the the great British pop, and it, it mentioned pulp. It mentioned a band called Denim, who sort of faded, but they are very, very in keeping with the sound of the mm-hmm. time. Uh, St Etienne who I think were considered to be a bit too poppy suede obviously and I think I think the, the consensus was that it was a response to grunge uh, the, the kind of pole facedness of grunge especially seeing as grunge had started already to become a parody of itself like, mm-hmm. I mean there was a huge difference to you know seeing Smells Like Teen Spirit for the first time and going holy fuck what is this yeah, punk rock and shit stuff, yeah. and then listening to uh, Pearl Jam <laughs> <laughs> and you know like that earnestness will only get you so far in Britain because I mean there's a lot to say about Britain but um, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily like people who take themselves too seriously yeah this this was the point where like the third photocopy of the Stone Temple Pilots sort of was in the charts and people were really just fucking burned out with it um, Damon Albarn was told that Blur were seen as being specifically a reaction to grunge and he replied well that's good if punk was about getting rid of hippies then i'm getting rid of grunge mm-hmm. and i think that that's yeah i mean looking back in it that does it does seem consistent Britpop was much more upbeat and silly and boyish and less sort of concerned i mean grunge wasn't political but it was mildly political nirvana were quite sort of quietly political in their gender politics and uh, you know, women's rights, the promotion of feminism. Britpop didn't really have any of that. When it when it did have it, it was because a band was hailed for being female fronted, mm-hmm. or you know, somehow it it felt very forced. But there was no real overt politics inside the lyrics, other than in some of the I would say better cases, the more kind of uh, keeping it real cases like Oasis. Just the fact that a lot of them came from working class backgrounds, and this was like one of the last times where working class groups seemed to kind of break through. Yeah, that although it's it's very interesting, and I think class has a lot to do with Britpop. Is that there's a lot of middle class folk, um, sort of doing a sort of class safari, um, and a nostalgic working class sort of reimagining of yeah. working class 80s culture and stuff like that which has then been recycled so many times now yeah it's also massive I mean looking back upon it this is something that's popped into my head and I, I don't really have much of a formation of thought on it but I thought I'd drop it in here anyway because it might be a good it might be an interesting discussion point is even though these bands are working class like the whole pop genre when you look back at it now still speaks like hugely to white male privilege as well massively so no it's overwhelmingly yeah. uh, white male 
Yeah. The only blackface I can remember is the drummer from Ocean Colors. So you know, I think that's about it. Yeah. And then and in terms was, uh, of females, you had... Skunk and Nancy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Skunk and Nancy. Br- yeah, but that's a bit rock. bit more Yeah, but it was rock. around in the same kind of... Yeah, I know. No, but the point yeah. is that Britpop had very, very little representation mm-hmm. of ethnic minorities. Very, like, very few female bands. But one of the female bands was Elastica. And Justine Frischman was their leader, and she kind of became one of the figureheads of Britpop. Oh yeah, undoubtedly they are one of the most Britpopiest Britpop yeah. bands as well. And what's interesting, uh, I was reading a, an interview that she did, and she was in a relationship with Damon Albarn of Blur for you know a good yeah, while. They she'd were like previously the, been in a relationship with Brett Anderson of yeah, Sweet yeah. as well. But what, although, can I just say I'm wary of us talking about that because this is one of those those like tropes where you, as soon as you mention a female musician, we we start talking about who their boyfriend is. Yeah, like, uh, yeah, you're right. It's so, a trope, man. But like, it was also the narrative at the time. Yeah, so, yeah. So like, what I would say is we like just to cover our backs there. That's only really necessarily interesting because they became a power couple and Frischman and Albarn became a power couple within that Yeah, movement. with equal yeah. sway. And what's interesting, interesting is, by the way, when they broke up, part of the reason was because uh, Albarn, who sounds like he might have been a little bit uh, insecure, was unhappy with her still being friends with Brett Anderson. He wrote Beobam <laughs> about the end of the relationship and, and the heroin abuse, didn't he? So, yeah. like, it was definitely... Something he was playing through at the time, but um, yeah. But what, what's interesting is like she talks, and she was like a main figure in its sort of movement. And we talk about grunge, which was maybe like a sort of accidental underground movement, which was then capitalized upon by record labels. Whereas Britpop seems way more like it actually had a head of steam. Like for instance, just Justin Frischman says, Damon and Damon and I felt like we were in the thick of it at that point. It occurred to us that Nirvana were out there and people were very interested in American music, and there should be some sort of manifesto for the return of Britishness. Yeah, so, so that's yeah. like a really interesting, deliberate movement of a genre and of a cultural movement that they, you know, they were specifically rebelling against something and going, oh, "Do you know what? I think you and I and a few others can actually create." A tangible thing that yeah. does this. It's funny. There's a really good uh, pull quote on Wikipedia as well about this, which is a uh, described Britpop as a media-driven focus on bands viewed as a marketing tool and more of a cultural movement than a musical genre or style. And it, it was an opportunity to sort of make a, a, a branding movement versus it happening more organically. I'm not saying either one is black or white. I'm not saying one is completely black, like, but there is definitely more. It feels like more of a, a an artifice around the notion of Britpop, especially since we can't fucking define it mm-hmm. or say who does or doesn't fit into it. It was a fa- um, it was a fashion movement for sure. It was a cultural thing. Uh, bands were grouped together because they fell into this weird cultural gladys commentary that existed. That's kind of the thing. Um, I don't know if this is on your list, Chris. If you want, if if you haven't seen it or you haven't read it. Kill Your Friends is a fucking great like explanation of like Britpop in general. Yeah. yeah, I can see it from here. Yeah, it's, it takes place at the height of Britpop, you know, and it's it, it always a great debt to American Psycho, like a large debt to American Psycho as a book. It's by the writer um, John Niven. John Niven, yeah, who was a record executive at the time mm-hmm. um, before he became an author. Um, and it, it actually encapsulates that whole era whilst also having this totally ridiculous um, narrative about serial killers on it. <laughs> so, uh, I didn't. I, Britpop sort of evolved into this overblown uh, marketing venture that 
started to be associated with this phrase Cool Britannia. And Cool Britannia, again, very uh, top-down bit of kind of cultural packaging. Mm. Uh, but Britpop was a, was a key element, but not the only element of that. The phrase Cool Britannia, by the way, is from a, a, a lyric by the Bonzo Dog Duda Band from 67. To give you an idea of how completely uh, part of the institution Cool Co- Britannia really was, it was registered as a flavour by Ben and Jerry in 1996. Mm-hmm. I think it was like strawberries and cream and some shit. And it became part of like, the, the, it was associated with New Labour being elected in 97. Uh, it, 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 it was a big... It was a huge cultural thing because in music you had like dance music, which was getting huge in Britain again. You know, you had Ministry of Sound and you had Ibiza and Pasha and all that. Uh, then you had, obviously, Britpop. Then, in terms of art, you had the young British artists. You had, you know, Tracy Hurst and Damien Hurst yeah. and stuff Jenny like that. Jenny Savile. Don't forget Jenny Savile. Uh, and then, like, in pop music, uh, you had, you know, Spice Girls and, you know, Jerry's infamous well, well, dress. Yeah, with, the funny you know, thing the, is, though, Spice Girls and that whole phenomenon was kind of the end of it. And like that, that's well, I don't know because Spice Girls were about ninety seven and New Labour were ninety six, ninety seven. So, but at the same time, that's the thing. Like when, invariably, I think when a political party and when huge corporations start to embrace, you know, when you start getting packaging of crisps and when biscuits yeah, and stuff. But I think that's what Cool Britannia is. Cool Britannia is that corporate packaging of the slightly less or the slightly more grassroots stuff like Britpop yeah so yeah. Brit, but, but Britpop, it sort of blew itself out is what I mean it's it's like a fire that sort of used up all its oxygen by expanding too fast like it, it expanded and became so completely mainstream yeah. that people lost interest in it and it was very soon after that that Cool Britannia was sort of quite laughable mm-hmm. and that's what I mean it's like that was in the dying sort of throes of its over expansion yeah whereas just prior to that certainly just in the run-up to the the, the Labour election for example there was like a lot of like interesting stuff happening in movies I mean interesting in a way that I don't particularly enjoy but certainly there was a huge British revival uh, well you had you know your Richard Curtis sort of shit well you, you, um, know, you also had like I mean in that era though we've got Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels Train Spot and Full Monty Golden Eye Shallow Grave Four Weddings and a Funeral Shooting Fish Twin Town uh, just and then just at the end of it you had fucking Spice World and Austin Powers yeah. you know these kind well, of things Austin Powers is a huge part and do you know it's like it's weird I think this whole Cool Britannia thing was this weird urge to be proud of being British again and after the 80s and after Thatcher you know Britain had been split up it all sounds very um, relevant it all sounds yeah weirdly relevant again Um, but you know you'd gone through the 80s which was such a divisive decade for Britain class was a huge thing and you'd had working class movements and middle class what was the middle class were they seen as the enemy I'm not sure and then the 90s came and we were maybe seeing an end to the Tory era but you had a huge amount of art coming out from you know grassroots but then hugely mainstream you know you had football for instance you know in the 80s was, Euro 96 exactly landed right in the middle of us mm-hmm. in the 80s it, football was tarnished with uh, football hooliganism mm-hmm. you had the hazel disaster and English teams were banned from playing in Europe until the mid 90s then Italian 90 happened and Gaza crying mm-hmm. and then over the next six years until Euro 96 and you know football came home 
That's what your hair's reminding me of, Gaza. Oh, oh, I'm happy with that. (laughs) And like, it was this huge entire cultural snowball in England, but also in Scotland because Scottish nationalism just didn't seem like a thing back then. That was for crazy Braveheart fans or what have you. I have a point we can come back to on that when you... Uh Because I want to talk a little bit about Britishness in general in this era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's totally Mm -hmm. what I'm thinking about. And like... Can we just also point out before we go too far down that road that this was all a sort of attempt to sort of recapture the glorious six, the swinging 60s totally because also and well, it's, it. it's also like the callback to like this, this, this happened right bang the exact same time as like they were starting to celebrate 50 years since World War 2 as well yeah do you know what I mean so like it was also the whole cultural kind of machine just revving up for this like one period but then it's also it's 25 years since 1969 it's like the guys that had uh, gone down Carnaby Street in the 60s you know we're now in their 50s and you know magazine editors or, or stuff like that people were you know looking back and going oh you remember James Bond and you remember Jaguar E-types and the Mini Cooper and things like that and all of these things had come back to a huge nostalgic cultural relevance because these things are you know cyclical and in the 90s people were looking back at the 60s with a huge fondness and going, oh, wasn't that a glorious time to be British? You'd gone through the 70s of the three-day working week, and you'd gone through the 80s of the minor strikes, and people were going, fuck, I wish it was the 60s again, because that was a great time. And so this was like a weird national attempt to feel good about Britain again. And, you know, the economy was starting, you know, was going to end up booming. Uh, We weren't, you know, the Cold War was over. The Tories ended up getting put out. It was... It was a weird time, optimistic but patriotic without the right wing, just a pure joy of patri- of patriotism. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's funny. <laughs> I mean, clearly this is all relevant now as well because we're in Britain in an era with a bit of a loss of identity, a sense of a, a slight inferiority complex. Because that is another thing about it as well. Like at that at that time. Britain was grappling with a growing insignificance in the world, like other countries. Oh yeah, were, absolutely. Yeah. And you'd had, you know, you'd gone through the eighties, which were hugely pro-American and Cold War stuff, like Rocky Four and things yeah. like that, and Die Hard and all of these things. And Germany, and, for example, was just the the Berlin Wall went down. Germany was reunified. It became like this economic powerhouse. Like there was like a kind of weird sense of like, oh wait a minute. We're Britain, though. We're 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 the best country, and then it was like, well, no, all these other countries want a shot now, yeah. and so yeah, there was definitely a sort of slight cultural anxiety around that, and that's, I mean, that's never been more relevant than in the last two weeks. I mean, we, we're now in the outside of the EU mm-hmm. uh, for <laughs> no good fucking reason, mm-hmm. um, other than uh, some sort of weird sense of trying to have patriotic pride again. So but this time, it's not been done by Jerry Halliwell and. Austin Powers, it's been done by Margaret, Sandra and Dennis down at the fucking British Legion. Yeah. Meanwhile, obviously all this Kilby Dragon stuff has happened and Britpop's a thing, yet up here in Scotland, like, the hangover from Thatcher is real. You know what I mean? Uh, like, yeah, yeah. Train spotting is like a depiction of, like, life in Scotland for a lot of people at that time. Mm-hmm. It couldn't be further away from what the marketing spiel is around Kilby Like, Scotland is a vastly different place compared to the rest of this 
kind of British identity they've tried to be foisted upon us by yeah. media and music and the magazines and stuff you know and it's I think it's really interesting how the cultural context is completely removed in that you know what I mean that's why it's probably why there's not a lot of Scottish bands involved in it either like mm-hmm. in a big in a big way because our concerns are vastly different I don't, say, I don't mean our but Scotland's concerns are vastly different from the rest of the UK but it's, I don't think Scotland had found its voice yet they had yeah so they had, they, had, they had all this pent up energy and all this horribleness and all this stuff going on but like it had no way of expelling it until yeah, so you know, that's yeah. till Braveheart came out. Yeah. Ah, freedom! <laughs> that kind of that leads us to an interesting point, but just before we go there, so just, just to set the scene before we start actually talking about the band, so try and imagine, for, for those that were there, try and remember, uh, but you've got, as we said, you've got like TFI Friday on the TV, Chris Evans, all this like cheeky chappy stuff. You've got Lockstock, uh, Shooting Fish, Four Weddings, all these kind of British movies. Uh, you've got like Fred, even the fashion, like Fred Perry, Burberry, all those guys had a, a huge resurgence uh, as it became fashionable to dress like a Ned. Ted Baker. Uh, the Adidas Samba, which you have then kept alive for a further 25 years. <laughs> I, will, I will concede I got that for the Stone Roses. Uh, like in 1993, Radio 1 had a big um, makeover and it ended up people like Joe Wiley, Steve Lamack, Chris Evans. They, mm. they, they played a much bigger part in the station in trying to modernise it and make it more relevant to younger people. Less about the sort of smashy and nicey playing Slade all the time. It was more about trying to play cutting edge stuff. Yeah, and then they had, you know, like Mark and Lard and stuff. Yeah, on, you know, so they were, and Even Chris Morris at night, you know, so they, were, they weren't scared to scare off the old folk. Yeah, um, you had TV series like, God, do you remember Game On? Oh yeah, fucking hell! Game on and men behaving badly. Mm-hmm. This life, this which life. is a huge one. Yep, they they were those kind of TV series were fucking really popular. And more than probably anything, you had the lad magazine culture of like Loaded, Maxim, GQ, Esquire. That F- eventually FHM. led to stuff like Nuts. Yeah, FHM. This this culture of like almost every actress be, being persuaded into a bikini at mm-hmm. some point yeah. or another. Uh, the sort of the Gail Porter years. The yeah, the Denise fa- Van Outen, Mel Sykes. Exactly. The, the, the intermingling. Boddingtons. Pints of Boddingtons yeah. adverts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's his name? Jack D doing adverts for John Smith. Or was it yeah, Bodding- yeah, yeah. John Smith, he did. Yeah, and, uh, then, uh, and then on part of that lad culture was like the, the magazine TV show, like TFI Friday yep. and mm-hmm. The Big Breakfast. And the Big Breakfast as well, yeah, with Johnny, the what's his breakfast, name? Big Breakfast, Johnny Vaughan. Vaughan. Yeah, still Denise on, Van Outen. Radio X. On air. Yeah, so this is, this is all like, I mean, it's it's quite a lot. Like culturally, it, like Cool Britannia encompassed Britpop, but it had a lot of other uh, facets going on. And when you think back to that, like, fuck. Culturally. Well, think of all the culture in Britain right now. It and feels that's, much and more desperate. It's fractured because yeah. of the internet and people are deciding what they like themselves. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is all the culture, but it's all one it's all yeah. sort of homogenized and it was kind of yeah it's homogenized and it was f- because it, it because it could be funneled through most of the same outlets yeah you know because the outlets were the arbiters because you needed these magazines like enemy like loaded mm-hmm. on your side depending on your marketing pitch they could all sort of get on message about roughly what was happening yeah i'm sure there was a bit of dissent here and there uh, but by and large you could sort of start to build up this one very big picture that actually endured for quite a number of years um, now you're talking about the relevance to Scotland against that backdrop one thing is just so fucking significant I think about Britpop is London mm-hmm. okay Absolutely. Yeah, specifically yeah. Camden yeah now, even though yeah the likes of Oasis were from Manchester and made Manchester very famous and stuff they did sort of relocate down to London mm-hmm. they had like these famous party flats in the kind of Camden area um, the accents that we were ripping the piss out of early on I mean Britpop was so fucking London centric yep. it was 
painful. I mean, and that played to all the worst and most unlikable aspects of it. Like we're talking about the arrogance of the journalists. This is when that attitude within the um, music press sort of really solidified. They didn't need to even leave their town to go and find out what was happening. It wasn't. It, it wasn't like the eighties where they had to go to Birmingham to check out heavy metal. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. It wasn't even like the mid-80s where they had to go up to Manchester to see Stone Roses and then Spirals. It was all these bands were located in London. The labels were like, right, move here if you're serious about it. Be seen in this bar, be seen in this club. The magazines, uh, the, the journalists were all drinking with the bands. The bands are drinking with the journalists. Everybody's in everybody else's pocket. There's a real level of condescension that results from that because it is such a clubhouse atmosphere mm-hmm. and it was very alienating up here. Totally, I mean, I, yeah. I know people were really into Britpop, but you, you couldn't really identify with it. You could enjoy the music and stuff mm. if, if that was your, your thing, but you, you couldn't necessarily identify with it because yeah. London was London and it fucking loved to remind you that it was London. Oh, you're a band, but where are you? Why are you there? You can't be a serious band if you're there. You need to go to London. And I mean, nothing could be further from the truth now, but then it was such a fucking consistent message broadcast everywhere and it really did create part of the attitude around Britpop there's a whole section in Kill Your Friends I don't know I can't remember if it's in the, if it's in the, in the book in the, no, in the film but it's in the novel where he has to go to Glasgow to see a band and it's yeah. like played for a and this is John Niven who's from Glasgow do you know what I mean and yeah. he's, he's obviously experienced that that <laughs> level of like oh shit we need to go up to fucking Glasgow fuck, aye, you blah, know? Blah, blah. and I think I think you're totally right man like I think even if you're a Britpop fan at that time even if you and even if you are a, you know a unionist right in any sense of the word at that time I can't imagine thinking that that, that vision of Britain that you're being sold as as the Britain that you know and exist in. Yeah, I mean when you when you think about some of the iconography from from the Cool Britannia era, the post boxes and the red London buses and lady, you know what's her name Britannia, Lady Britannia, whatever the fuck that that statue is, um, and the mods and it, it's just it's like the London tourist shop. There were also some places specifically in London that uh, became like hubs for this. There was a club called Smashing on Regent Street and it closed in 96 just as the scene started to, to drift. Uh, and that was like known as like a quote breeding ground for Britpop. Uh, it was a place where like Suede and Pulp and Blur would all go uh, drink. Pulp, I think they did the video for the Disco 2000 that was shot in that club and a fucking lot of cocaine was done in that club mm. as well. Um, they had the place in Camden called The Good Mixer, which is like this little bar that became notorious uh, for just it being, if you wanted to go and see somebody famous cutting about, you would go in there. I think it's the place where uh, No Gallagher first in- insulted Graham Coxon, <laughs> saying something like, uh, music's all right, but your clothes are shit. Or, mm. I'm not really sure. But these these places became the sort of like whiskey a go-go CBGBs of this scene. But they were so fucking far away from us. It was like, my God, like I, I just do not connect with this at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the tales of debauchery and coke and parties and no Gallagher's dirty flat and all that kind of stuff. It's very funny, but it might as well have been on fucking Mars mm-hmm. uh, f- for all it was relevant to us up here. There's a good quote from Melody Maker at the time where it says, uh, Camden is to 1995 what Seattle was to 1992, what Manchester was to 1989, and what Mr. Blobby was to 1993. <laughs> <laughs> fucking nose house party. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. <laughs> Although this is like all a rebellion against that old fuddy duddy shit. But yeah. I mean, I, rem- I remember nose house party and employer's country house confusing me as a child because I thought they were maybe the same thing <laughs> yeah, exactly the same yeah. <laughs> exactly the same so um yeah before like again before we talk about the acts there's one other thing that really came up as an interesting cultural aside and it's the Union Jack okay mm-hmm. now 
I think it's it's important to remember that um, in nineteen ninety two, early in nineteen ninety two, Morrissey was slammed in a lot of the press for going on stage at Finsbury Park draped in a Union Jack. Now Morrissey of today, notwithstanding, we all know I think the reality of Morrissey and what a fucking cock the guy actually is. But back then, to be lambasted for going on stage with a Union Jack showed you culturally that the Union Jack then was still quite toxic. It was, yeah, it had been tainted over the last 15 years by the National Front. Exactly. So you had the 80s, you had this big like sort of skins movement, you had the National Front, you had like a lot of like far-right groups. I mean, there's some really great uh, dramatised TV shows and films about that movement alone. The, the flag was pretty toxic, let alone the fact that it was also toxic to the generations of people from India and other countries where it had been yeah. know, an, an imperial occupational forces flag. But like, can you imagine in America the the uh, Stars and Stripes ever being toxic? No. But, you know, in Britain, that's how bad it had got. Uh, I think NME on the cover under that picture of Morrissey, the, the headline was Flying the Flag or Flirting with Disaster. Now, bear in mind that a year later, Select had that cover with Brett Anderson in mm-hmm. front of a of a Union Jack, and mm-hmm. suddenly it's this the great British pop. It was a whole new movement. It's really strange to see that sort of like one eighty turn in attitudes yeah. towards the flag, just because it became ubiquitous in the movement. It was all over. It was No Gallagher's fucking guitar. Yep. It was on the covers of the albums. Mm-hmm. Jerry Halliwell's dress. Jerry Halliwell's dress. Fucking Mini Cooper started turning the, the side lights in their cars into yeah. half Union Jack, which they still do now. Which yes. they still do now. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's <laughs> so bizarre. But it is one of the best brand. Transformations, of, you know, of the last forty Absolutely, years. Absolutely, yeah. Brand like, refresh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> got a bonus. The St George's flag will probably need soon. I would yeah. like to know. I would like to know what exact what agency was exactly responsible for creating this entire fad because it's it's certainly come from the mind of a marketing agency. <sighs> well, I think it's a mix. It's like so many. It's too big. Like, yeah, like it's I was too saying, with, one. you know, with Damon and Justin, they had a deliberacy about it, and I think what it had was lots of people in different genres and different art movements all having the same sort of deliberacy of movement and you know yeah i mean one thing i don't want to i don't want to sound like a tinfoil hat guy conspiracy theorist here right but do you think it's not maybe a bit funny that charles satch had a massive advertising agency and an art gallery all around or all really big <laughs> around the same time but what was happening oh well i think i think he's more of a damon hurst for, for example well yeah i don't know Young young British artists. I think they're was, just part of it. The Satchel Gallery, you, yeah. You know, so just something to think about. <laughs> I, don't I think I think it'll it, definitely have helped <laughs> good branding. Yeah. No doubt. Just uh, just something to think about. I don't have a, I don't have a pain either way, but I thought it'd be <laughs> funny to chuck it in there. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, and one last point, just on the sort of uh, the history of Britpop. It's interesting that as it died, uh, Noel Gallagher had just been invited to and attended a meeting with the Prime Minister at number 10 Downing Street. The ultimate attempt at co-opting a youthful movement by Tony Blair, a Prime Minister who was really championing the fact that he was young and cool and going to be a lot more in touch with the with the kids. So yep. this band that were known as being edgy as fuck and unpredictable, going to 10 Downing Street and shaking hands with a Prime Minister. I mean, no Gallagher looks back on that now with a bit of disbelief that he went along with it. But it is interesting how that was sort of one of the death knells of the movement. Just in terms of, right, we've jumped to shark, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, so let's talk about some of the acts. I mean, we might as well start with Oasis, I guess, since we're talking about No Gallagher. Uh, anybody heard of Oasis? Uh, I mean, in passing. Yeah. I, I mean, they physically cannot be 
uh, unsung because they are the mo- possibly the most overrated band of all time just by in terms of the huge cultural movement that they yeah. still like they still have such a cultural influence on such a huge huge amount of young white males I mean let's be honest if Oasis did get back together again tomorrow uh, they could probably sell 150,000 tickets oh yeah, you thought in, that came Glasgow, with in you. Glasgow yeah yeah well I mean somebody like Jerry Cinnamon sold out Hamden Park in five minutes and Jerry Cinnamon is just a memory of what people remember Oasis being but Jerry, he's only one of them Jerry owes a lot to that I think like Jerry one of the things he has uh, to his credit and a bit like Oasis is that he's a genuinely working class guy that, yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's, it's yeah. fucking few and far between that people make it now from that background and so I you know no matter how much, I'm not going to pretend to listen to Jerry's music but I can't shit on the guy because the guy's done extremely well. And Oasis did serve as a, 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 a an inspiration for working class musicians at that time because it was getting harder. Mm-hmm. And and Britpop is certainly, like you said, there's a fair amount of poverty tourism in Britpop. And Blood, Oasis, Blood especially were, yeah, were a worse yeah, yeah, like private schoolboys, you know. Yeah. And this was the start of that, like the unattainability of like stardom. But Oasis, to their credit, have always been that sort of example of like, you know, these fucking guys came from like proper backgrounds, you know, mm-hmm. like not that it makes you irrelevant if you come from an affluent background, but certainly don't pretend that you don't. And yeah. and it's just it's just nice that there was an example out there. And so Oasis did energize this sort of uh, working class musical fraternity. You yeah. know, as Dave was saying about it, it got it, it got that culture of like the rave culture into indie discos. Mm-hmm. Oasis played a big part in getting the the, the young working class boys and girls to start playing music. Yeah, and arguably bringing the guitar back in as an instrument of choice as well yeah. at that time because mm-hmm. dance was massive and even throughout but probably you said Dave it was massive mm-hmm. as well. Um, one thing I think is interesting about Oasis and I think they even admit it themselves is they, when they stopped being working class when they were so famous and making so much money the music was harder to write. You know, yeah, the, yeah. the topics were yeah. less interesting. Yeah. It was just like very mass. bloated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think by that is it the Be Here Now album. Yeah, it was it's got just fucking Johnny Depp playing guitar on for yeah. fuck's sake. A notoriously like bloated, overproduced thing. Yeah, it's like a true cocaine to- to- bloated to- yeah. album. Um, Whereas you can't deny that definitely maybe man, you can't. You, this is, is an thing, album with some fucking great tracks. I, I think it's definitely maybe is just objectively yeah. a very fucking good record. I know, I know the band have so much baggage and association now, but. I mean, it was genuinely refreshing. And it's a record that didn't try and shit in all its idols and it, it drew from really interesting, disparate, mm. you know, sources. Uh, no Gallagher, like, famously saying that he thought Kurt Cobain was the only songwriter of the last genera- of the last decade, wor- like, worthy of being classed alongside the likes of John Lennon, Jimi Hendrix, mm. uh, those kind of writers. And, you know, the guy did listen to a lot of really interesting music and he kind of channeled it into this band that did a very, especially in that first album, that kind of, like, at times quite psychedelic kind of the, the track Columbia things like that it was very interesting music they were in the 60s psychedelic rock as well yeah you know, he was um, for sure I mean they, they obviously Oasis are such a fucking anachronism now like you just what, what is the point of the band mm-hmm. now other than to go back through this fucking cycle of playing these stupid four chord sequences again and then arguing with each other it's totally irrelevant mm-hmm. but you cannot take it away from them Absolutely. early it's, on. Yeah, like Dave said, they stand out. They're also anachronism in the sense that musically, they stand out like a sore thumb from everything else yeah. at the time. That was huge. Can I just, interest in fact that on a, definitely maybe the track Shaker Maker mm-hmm. was basically totally plagiarised and they ended up having to pay half a million quid yeah. for it from I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing 
In Perfect Harmony by Roger Cook and Roger Greenway. You also had to it's, give release uh, to T-Rex for some other songs as well because like, yeah. you famously and knowingly plagiarised. Now, at the same time as that, Oasis were so big that they had a whole raft of cover bands that were making a living because Oasis were playing Nebworth and stuff mm, like that. Yeah. That, and one of the biggest ones was a band called No Oasis yeah. mm-hmm. from Glasgow. Uh, and they released a cover of the original I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing, but in an Oasis style. Kind of cheekily showcasing yeah. the fact that it was the same song. Um, can I also just say that when I was in Australia for a year, I used to hang out around with the drummer from Noasis quite a lot. He's good pals with our uh, funder and friend Craig Carrick, uh, <laughs> and he's currently a ambulance driver in Melbourne. Wow! And he's a good lad. That's 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 like Dave Nexus. It's like the Dave Nexus. Yeah, there you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, Right, well, we talk about the, the other elephant in the room then, Blur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They formed in 1988, so, I mean, they, they, they'd been about quite a while. Um, that first record of theirs, Leisure, is it's very indie-ish, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, kind of Manchester-y almost. Yeah, so. we don't, don't want to sit in them for too long, uh, not wanting to show our hand, but we may be discussing them <laughs> <laughs> in the second part of the show. But yeah, they, they, they moved away from the Manchester thing for the second album, Modern Life is Rubbish. Uh, their big breakthrough was Park Life in 1994, which kind of cemented them and it kind of defined Britpop really. The accents, the sort of cheekiness, the the sort of pacing in the tune, the level of heaviness, the guitars but not too heavy. It, it, it's it's one of those things that is just really a really easy way to illustrate the phenomenon. Yeah, and, and they're also a band that actually went on to do some pretty interesting things, but much more so after the fact, once they got over that period of like the, the limelight, I mean, you, you mentioned Damon Albarn and Justin Frischman were the it couple mm-hmm. of, of the Britpop movement. Uh, they were just so intrinsically entangled yeah. with, with Britpop. And then Oasis versus Blur was obviously the the thing that brought Britpop to its peak in the British mainstream sort of audience. And that was when uh, it was country two singles, house. Country House and... Uh, Rocket, and, uh, the one from... Champion, Roll With It. Roll With It, yeah. Uh, yeah, so... And I think it was NME that Blur actually... Blur won that, by the way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blur got to number one, Roll With It was at number two, but then Oasis's album sold four times more than Blur's, so... Mm-hmm. But it's interesting, that was, like, such a huge cultural battle, and, you know, that was when people tuned into the radio to find out what was at number one on the top 40 charts, and they were, yeah, they were on the front page of not just the music magazines, but of, you know, the, the tabloids paper. and yeah, the, yeah. the broadsheets. Right. Um, yeah, it's a uh, working class v posh as well. There's that element with Oasis and both. North v South. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Pulp. Yeah, I've been around for ages, man. Like just like Oasis. Yeah, uh, they formed when they were like 15 in 1978. 1978. Was it? Pulp yeah. formed in. That is fucking mad. Yeah, but I mean, Jarvis Cocker was only about 15 at yeah, that point. He but, was. He was. But they were band led by. They were called. Uh, they, you know, they were originally called uh, Arabica's Pulp. Yeah. After the coffee, and then they just shortened it. <laughs> yeah. It may seem strange. 
like what you've seen here is a lot of the bands had very very strong personalities obviously you had Nolan Liam uh, Damon Alburn had this sort of foppish lad thing going on and then yeah Jarvis Cocker was a huge personality his lyrics especially really brought a sort of like yeah a sort of dark northern sense of humour to uh, Mm -hmm. the the genre yeah he's definitely a really interesting guy Jarvis Cocker Um, what like fucking mad props to the guy for that Michael Jackson stage invasion. Yeah, it's a stop for him, isn't it? Yeah, yeah he's, he's been proven right. I think history it, yeah, is, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, this, I, I still haven't been able to work this out, but I heard a very, very good fucking rumour about Jarvis Cocker being in a black metal band. I did some digging on this and it was really, I couldn't really find I much information. Find it, you know, and I really wish I could remember where I'd heard it, but it was some side project that he'd been doing. It was like some kind of gothic metal thing that he did. I really fucking wish I could give you more details about it. If, if anybody listening can find out more about that, or can just fucking put me out my misery and tell me that whoever said it was just talking bollocks, great. But <laughs> I do seem to remember it being very credible at the time, and I've not been able to find anything out about it. Um, he kind of had a breakthrough in 94 with his and hers, uh, with a track called Do You Remember the First Time, stuff like that and that. Different Class in 95 was when it really happened. Uh, it entered the charts at number one, won the 96 American Music Prize. I think it's number five or six in Enemy's Greatest Albums of All Time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had tracks like Common People, which is, I mean, in, in all fairness, Common People is one of the absolute best songs to come out of that era. It's a really fucking great yeah, great and it was, music. Yeah, it was one that I would have been, what, eight or nine when that came out. And I remember everybody in my primary school Love that song. Yeah, I mean, it, I, it was like a total cultural phenomenon. Everybody knew that song. It's, and it's fucking great. It's so interesting to see people DJ it now because when it comes on, you initially forget just how big the song gets at the end. Mm-hmm. And it's an absolute fucking banger by the end. It's just, it just keeps building and building and layering up. And it's a fucking massive song. Starts with that that really mad like keyboard thing, which is pretty big in itself. Like, like, yeah. All right, how do you how do you how do you build that? Apparently, you build that by having another keyboard player and two guitarists (laughs) and somebody else. And like, like, I think it was like seven people in the band at that point. Yeah, it was. It was a big group. Mm -hmm. I I mean, they had they had other hits as well. They'd like Disco Two Thousand was a big hit for them as well, but Mm -hmm. nothing like Common People. But they were a band that got huge through. Well, Glastonbury kind of mirrored how huge they were because they did. they filled in for the Stone Roses at the last minute in 1995. And they headlined it. And then... Oh, yeah. yeah. So, I think the year before, they played a legendary set, and then the year after, they headlined, and it was like... Yeah, so 95, they they headlined it, and the reason I know that is because one of the later bands was second on the bill, and we'll we'll wait to get to them, because they are a very (laughs) interesting (laughs) case study. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think Jarvis Cocker famously described Pulp as a cross between ABBA and The Fall. Which is great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Swede, who we've talked about, also known as the London Swede, if, <laughs> if you're a, a user of Spotify, which uh, I, I don't really know what that's all about. Uh, but uh, Swede formed in 1989. They were kind of glam early on. Um, I still hear it on our sound a little bit as well. Yeah.
Brett Anderson was a big part of Suede. That he's look like very attractive young man, like open shirted, sort of as you say, very androgynous, kind of no pants, leather trousers type dude. Uh, which was not really very typical of the Britpop movement in general. It wasn't. It didn't really go in for that kind of sexier sort of appeal. It was much more into geek chic, if anything, like guys like Jarvis Cocker. I think Suede, in their own way, and Brett Anderson were precursors of Placebo, to some extent. Brian Mocha, I think, got a lot of energy from the the, the way that they, they performed. When you see their shows, you can... You can fucking really confident guy, let's put it that way. Um, and they were joined sort of slightly later by a guitarist called Bernard Butler, who became really key to their sound and actually became quite a revered musician in his own right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in 1992, they were the best new band uh, in Melody Maker. And that's when they'd brought out their first record, which had uh, the fucking brilliant song called Animal Nitrate on it. Yeah. It just still stands up. It's a really fucking great tune. Uh, a track on it called So Young as well. So the biggest selling debut album of all time in Britain at, at that point? At, at the time, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was. It was the biggest selling debut of all time, which is interesting though because then his ex-girlfriend then takes that title off him with her first, <laughs> with her debut. Uh, but their second album was Dogman Star in 94, which I'm sure you'd recognise if you saw it. And then in 96, right, I mean, these two albums were bang slap in the middle of Britpop. Uh, they had an album called Coming Up, which had a, Trash, which is actually a pretty good song, and a track in it called Beautiful Ones, which I fucking hate. Yeah, and Film uh, Star as well was really good. annoying chorus. Film Star, which is also really fucking annoying. So, yeah, so, and his ex, uh, Justin Frischman, was uh, the front woman of Elastica, who formed in 1992, and actually, I, I didn't even know they had the second album. They, they brought out a second album in 2000 and then split in 2001. They were like, the main female faces on the scene. There, there are a few more that we'll touch on, but the, they were they were the kind of the the most prominent women that were, were classed in with Britpop. The sound was a lot more post punk, and in fact led to a lot of problems because their music was in some cases just an absolute rip off of Wire. Yeah, it's Lowdown by Wire and Connection by uh, Elastica are so fucking similar. Like, their riff is totally ripped. Uh, they were also influenced by Gang of Four. By the way, we should probably make a mention that Andy Gill of Gang of Four died last week, sadly. Yeah. Uh, and The Fall as well. Yeah, uh, so the, the Elastica debut in 95 knocked Suede off that title of the fastest selling UK debut up to that point. What else? I don't know. It's like, I think, uh, to be fair, that's probably one of the best records of that era. It's a, it's a pretty good album. It's very Britpop. Another one like Blur that really sort of pins the sound down. Uh, yeah, when you're talking about the genre rather than the movement, it's one of the... The sounds, they go to kind yeah. of reference points, yeah. The second album, 2000, by the way, was called The Menace and has one of the worst opening tracks I think I've ever heard in an album. <laughs> but in fairness, some of the other tracks aren't so bad. But I was horrified by the fucking opening tune. It is just horrendous. Um, so another two bands that will skim by for no particular reason, Nudge Nudge Wink Wink, uh, Supergrass, Manic Street Preachers. Yeah, do you want to, is that a good point to talk about Kill Camera? 
which is like the the Kill Britannia equivalent, and and, and that happened the in Welsh Wales. one, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which was like catatonia and cerephonics and super furry animals and all that, and manics were like slap bang as like the the sort of centerpiece mm-hmm. of that, yeah. And it, it sort of took place alongside in it, and yeah, just from a kind of social political context, these are all super working class bands like coming out of ex mining towns or whatever, yeah. Like the manics, for and it was a little bit more legitimate than the cool Caledonia one because yeah. the bands actually existed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, just a really interesting little kind of side thing there because it was just, you know, again, from the whole Cool Britannia thing, it was like, let's try and make this bit cool. But only they actually seem to lean on the Welsh identity in their music a lot more, um, which you could argue, well, a lot of the Britpop bands did as well with their Englishness, but Englishness is never really recognised as being a cultural thing. Cause it's kind of, <laughs> I don't know if it's collateral, yeah. Yeah, because that's basically Britishness, but they just try and pass it off as Britishness. <laughs> yeah. um, right, so let's get into some deeper cuts then. Uh, this is when we'll start to get a little bit horrified. Space. Oh, I heard that on the. I don't know. Somebody played it recently. Female of the Species or Neighborhood? Or no. the Ballad of Tom Jones. Ballad of Tom Kerry Jones. Kerry oh, Matthews from Catatonia. That one. Oh. First single I ever bought. Oh, I <laughs> really? Fucking hate yeah. You it are so joking. Much. Yeah, man. That's when it started that, for you. Well, I don't throw the niggas. Yeah. No wonder you're fucking damaged goods, man. <laughs> and I don't come from Wales. I must oh. have been like. <laughs> fucking dreadful. I must have been like, what, fucking. 10 or 11 at the time yeah and already so damaged um yeah i mean they had this weirdly kind of slightly melodramatic thing going on it was like a little bit tongue-in-cheek yeah 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 Yeah. yeah. you have the divine comedy Yeah, did this theme tune for Father Ted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some fucking Divine Comedy were actually. If I knew more about them, I know like they've actually got some great stuff. I just, <laughs> I just couldn't pick one of them. I find that's so hard to believe. Yeah. Um. I mean, here's here's a better Boo Radley's. They were, I mean, they were definitely a market exercise, that band. No, see, now that's interesting, right? Because the Boo Radleys actually started off as like an art rock band years before. So this is another thing we didn't distinguish from Britpop. Um, the shoegaze movement. And mm-hmm. there were a lot of very good, very prominent British shoegaze bands. Uh, and some of the members of the Britpop, such as the guys in Supergrass, for example, were in the Jennifers, who were mm-hmm. a shoegaze band prior. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Boo Radleys were much more involved in that kind of art scene early on. And then it was their second album, that album Wake Up, that everybody knows, and that track Wake Up Boo, where they got much, much more mainstream uh, quite quickly. Uh, they had like much more of a Beach Boys kind of multi-harmony, sunny, buoyant thing going on. And yeah, from that point, they seem very considered, very deliberate. It's like, oh, this thing's happening, we should do that. But they were a band previously, they already had an album, and it's a, it's a much more uh, unorthodox thing. Uh, Ocean Colour Scene? Yep. 
They were also a shoegaze band early on. They predated the Britpop movement and started out doing a, a much trippier, dreamier stuff. I mean, some. Well, they actually, have a lot. It's of interesting. Songs. Look at the looking at the, like the sort of the threads that go through it, and you've got the bands that come from like the sort of Manchester scene, and then I like shoegaze sort of stuff that come from the ride sort of vibe. Uh-huh. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Because ride, um, even though they're kind of an indie band, they, they they do straddle that thing of being quite trippy, quite dreamy. And a lot of those bands, that jangliness early on was quite heavily saturated with effects. You know, coming out of the 80s where, where everything had effects on it. So there was that and it, it, it kind of cleaned up a bit into Britpop. Britpop, the sounds became drier and cleaner and more precise, more poppy, I guess. I mean, Ocean Colors do have some fucking huge songs. I remember quite liking them the first time I ever heard them, that song, Davey Caught the Train. Yeah. Just because I thought, oh, that's quite a nice melody. Mm-hmm. I kind of went off them really fucking fast after that. They had that song, The Riverboat the Song. Riverboat Song, yeah. Which was, is that not the intro riff for one of the TV shows? TFI Friday. Friday. TFI yeah. Friday was that the one. And uh, they had that song, 100 Mile High City. Mm-hmm. It's like, a, it's a pretty fucking uh, recognisable riff in terms of, you know, it's pretty distinct. Um, yeah, so uh, here's another one. Sleeper. Sleeper. Yeah. Female fronted, as yeah. they were always fucking referred to <laughs> because of Louise Winner. Um, first album's called Smart, uh, but that was kind of very typical of Britpop at the time. Um, they, had, they had some alright moments, actually, Sleeper. I mean, they were just an, they were just a happy indie band, and yeah. they could just have easily existed, I think, without Britpop, mm-hmm. you know, in amongst a group of, you know, like bands like Teenage Fan Club and some of the American sort of indie bands that were about at the time. And But they also had a, a, an album called The It Girl, which for them had a big breakthrough on it with a track called What Do I Do Now? Mm-hmm. Which I think is still probably one of the better tunes of that era. Uh, you mentioned Super Furry Animals. Mm-hmm. If you don't want me to destroy you, take a leaf out of my book, turn it round and have a look, because I don't want A little bit more eclectic, that band. Yeah, we're, we're prone to a bit more. Uh, yeah, we a bit more psyche. Um, I mean, Griff Reese is always done weird shit so yeah, yeah it's always, always been a strange band um Catatonia Catatonia fuck going down the Welsh that was definitely a thing <laughs> yeah. I mean see when people go to do a Welsh accent I'd say at least half of them probably do road rage yeah, yeah. totally Mulder and Scully. Like you sound a bit like Bjork there. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I fucking hated that band. Absolutely fucking no, hated them. I oh, feel like Catatonia had a death metal band. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Sort of gothic, a K, with yeah. a K, kind of gothic band. Um, uh, cast, they're a band that I would 
try and do a Liverpool accent. If John was Power. Yeah. Fucking hell. John Power was a guy from The Lies who did that. There she goes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which was, that song was actually in So I Married an Axe Murderer. That was like the theme tune of that. that oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which I didn't realise was part of why it got so big. It helped it break in America. But yeah, John Power went on to do cast afterwards. Uh, and really he was returning to a scene that he'd helped start because the Laz were a huge part of yeah, totally. that Britpop sound um, if, I mean what did they have like, All Change that album All Change had Sandstorm uh, Fine Time that track All Right which is fucking stinking and I think possibly one of the worst ballads ever written <laughs> which is a track called Walk Away Yeah, I remember it. I think it was on now 33 or 34, and it was fucking dreadful. You say, only want to say, and then it's got, walk away, walk, walk away. Can I track that your dad could write in five fucking minutes? <laughs> Gotta walk away. Oh, it was absolutely fucking stinking, that song. Um, Shed 7? Shed 7. Yeah, they Stumbling. were like straight from the Oasis thread of just really strange. rock. Yeah, I was listening to them yesterday. I went through a couple of their records and I remember actually in their, their album A Maximum High, which I think is like their second or third album, um, there was a track on it called Where Have You Been Tonight? I thought it was actually, I really liked that song when it came out. I'm still really young, but it, it stands up as like a surprisingly well written song with some interesting, you know, changes. Uh, they had a track called On Standby as well that was pretty big for them. But they had a couple of really big hits later on. In 98, they brought out Let It Ride, which was a kind of bigger album. Had really. Well, I think they were maybe filling the gap of choruses that Oasis were failing to do at that, you point. Know, at that point. Yeah. And people were kind of moving to them. I don't mean to try and give the impression that I think no. they were any great shakes. But interesting aside, one of my friends grew up in New York and she went to the same school as Rick Witter from Shed 7. And uh, she says that one time she was walking home, she was about six years younger than him and he pushed her over in a park. <laughs> great. <laughs> uh, can we talk a little bit about the seahorses? Oh. Yeah. You know, actually, I don't think they're the worst. They're not the worst. I'm just putting that out there. But it's John Squire from Stone Roses, 1996. Again, going, I'm, about, going, I'm going to start a bit of Yeah, so it's like John Power coming back to a scene to help yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. See, I mean, see, see, horses have some pretty good tunes, man. They have that big single they had, which is still, still pretty good. It sounds a bit like Oasis, but it's still a pretty cool song. What was it called again? Oh, I can't remember. They don't have one staring at the sun, blinded by the sun, yeah. or something like that. Hang on. And one who were floating about in a, in a spaceship as well. Uh, you also had the Lightning Seeds. Who Love then, is the uh, law. Yeah, like had a couple of big tracks, and then obviously did fucking three lines on the shirt. You should uh, huge fucking start winding up the Prince buzzer because <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's that's where the name comes from, Raspberry Bray. Because he thought 
Well, the Lyric is Thunder Drowns that were Lightning Seas, but they thought it was a Lightning Seeds, and that's where they got their name from. Okay. Uh, you then got uh, Baby Bird. <laughs> You're gorgeous. That was a parody. Yeah, movie, right? there's yeah. like a whole load of. I, I mean, the Charlatans were pretty big. We've got a uh, Kula Shaker. I mean, Kula Shaker were the weird Indian foppy. That's because weird as fuck. So Crispin Mills' mum was Haley Mills, the actress, yeah. and she'd raised him in India, I think. So he, there was like yeah. Some... So their whole thing was basically in indie Britpop, but <laughs> with a sitar. Dinda, dinda, da, uh, yeah, they did <laughs> Govinda Jaya and Tatva. And like that song, hush, 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 and it was like they were like the what the band that were most harking back to like late sixties uh, Beatles. Um, yeah, like I and I remember I really really wanted this cassette because I really liked that Govinda tune, and uh, yeah, my mom eventually bought it for me from John Menzies on all this. <laughs> John Menzies, yeah, and then I. Got the album and I was like, "Oh, I've I've made an error here. This <laughs> is truly bad." Yeah, that's right. Called uh, "Hey Dude" that I actually didn't mind yeah. early on. It was really early, but yeah, they were a fucking stinking band. Uh, we had Echo Belly. Um, which owed. <laughs> I think, to be fair, uh, no disrespect intended, but Echo Belly owed a lot to the fact that Sonia Madden was very fucking cute and very much pushed to the front of that band at every fucking opportunity. Mm. Uh, their, their music's actually not too bad. It's just very unremarkable. It's kind of teenage fan clubby, minus some of the personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had a really distinct accent, though, and uh, like some of her lyrical turns became sort of like the archetype of like leaning into a word because it's Britpop, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. Uh, dodgy Shite oh. Out for the summer In a room Bangers uh, No what was the The biggest one was uh, Good enough for you It's good yeah. enough oh. for me Another one Good yeah. enough Like so yeah A lot of these but bands Found a chorus And then made a career Out of it yeah. Dodgy are oh. more than Almost any other band In this discussion uh, Supermarket advertising music Out for the summer was on every picnic fucking advert. Yeah, they're like good summer. enough as well. Yeah, they were they were like the precursors to Top Loader. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then I mean, you had Kinnicky, uh Lauren Laverne, Lauren Laverne's I think we should rush through the rest because we, yeah we've gone pretty we've deep, gone pretty deep. And we're not we're we're there's not a lot of quality left. Okay, uh, well, we've got the otters who were in that original intake cover. of bands, but they didn't yeah. really get very far. But their their first one uh, was actually pretty good. 
Manson. You mentioned denim, Manson. Menswear. Um, you mentioned denim. There was also well, menswear. <laughs> menswear. We're going to finish on because they are a very interesting phenomenon. Salad. Uh, <laughs> remember They'd salad? Run out of fucking Is anyone tried anymore? Point? No. I mean, you know what? <laughs> salad. Actually, there's a track by Salad called "Drink the Elixir." I'll put a sample in. It's actually pretty fucking good. It sounds more like the Breeders. They were still lumped in with that movement. Yeah. Uh, they had an album called Drink Me and an album called Ice Cream and a very, very attractive front woman again called Marine van der Vloyt, who was like an ex-host in MTV Europe. And again, the press jumped on that, the fact that they had this like focal point in in their, you know, the image of the band. Penultimate band here, the Blue Tones. Yep. Yeah. I Slight actually return. really liked their first album. They had an album called Expecting to Fly that came out early on. It was like 96. Uh, it was released on their own offshoot of A&M Records, I don't know why that happened It debuted at number one There's a fucking brilliant track in that called Slight Return That really got a lot yeah. of people Yeah, Slight Return's pretty good Yeah, it got a lot of people on side Did you Slight Return was number two in the charts purely because of Spaceman by Babylon Zoo, keeping it off the top place. A fucking banger. Cool <laughs> Britannia peak, man. But their album was actually uh, the album that knocked What's the Story off number one, yeah. uh, the Blue Tones. Can I also, before, are you about to talk about menswear? I'm about to talk about menswear. I was just going to say, Blue Tonic cuts some rug. They're, they're kind of humble indie music, no gimmicks. They were a, they were a like I always, band. I always tied them together with the eels for some reason. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. Like a British, band. I don't know why. But anyway, and then shampoo worth talking about. Yeah, yeah. Because they yeah. were like the forerunners of girl power, and the Spice Girls basically took shampoo and then totally packaged it up. Uh oh. Yeah, Shampoo were actually, you know, fairly interesting and they, they were an English duo. Yeah, they... Was that a, a weird... We, yeah, they were like a yeah. weird mix of like Riot Girl and Britpop and it was a bit dancing, it was a bit punky. But they released four records. Uh, That's mad. Yeah. Who the fuck has the fourth Shampoo album? Yeah. <laughs> um, right, okay, and then to finish this part of the episode, I, I, I mean, we cannot fucking talk about Brits, Britpop and not talk about the band Menswear. Men's weight with an at instead of an a, which I think they must be the first band to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, like a totally manufactured Britpop band. Um, really interesting as a phenomenon, though, and especially in the way we were talking about how interlinked the media and the bands were. 
and the record labels were they were in each other's pocket so for example you might know menswear for the song Daydreamer which is frankly more Elastica than Elastica Breathe deeper Daydreamer It should have been one of theirs. Um, they had like really contrived look, really like suits and floppy sort of Jarvis Cocker hair. They'd kind of pulled all these different parts from all these other bands. They actually had a second album that only got released in Japan. I have no idea why. Um, during the article on Select, uh, two of the members of Menswear who were kind of involved in music started referring to a band called Menswear, but the band Menswear didn't actually exist. They were just dropping it like planting the seed. <laughs> they ended up in the cover of Melody Maker when they'd never released anything right? they appeared on top of the pops one week before their first single was ever released <laughs> they signed a half million pound publishing deal despite only having seven songs written and they were second top on the bill of Glastonbury after Pulp in 1995 it is fucking mad that they, they, they were just completely the, the, the well, this, was, this was Camden eating itself yeah. or just Camden going <laughs> Fuck it, let's just <laughs> see how far we can take this they bullshit. They conjured themselves out of the ether. It's fucking incredible. Like, they, they dropped their name in an interview about other Britpop bands and suddenly agents wanted to know, who's this fucking menswear that everybody's fucking talking about? Didn't have any songs. It's a fucking amazing phenomenon. An amazing phenomenon and probably a nice way to wrap up because you see there a scene that was so hopelessly fucking up its own arse by that point that it could do things like that. And produced this fucking dog shit band. Uh, but I mean, they didn't last. So. No, they didn't last. It's funny seeing their discography is literally just that one cover. The the second one apparently is slightly countryish, <laughs> which is maybe why they released it in Japan and then told them to fuck off. But there you go. So after the break, which will be a week, uh, we are going to release the second part, which will have an album chosen by each of us. Will we say what the albums are? Oh yeah, yeah. on you go, Dave. Uh, so I've. I thought we should at least have one by Oasis or Blur, and I've gone for Blur by Blur. The 97, 97 album, which you yeah. probably know best for a song too, yeah. uh, but has a lot more to it. Mark? I went for Everything Must Go by the My Street Features from 1996. Yeah, which I think is, on the is right on the cusp of Britrock. Yeah, rock, I would agree well, with that. Yeah. I mean, you, you had to choose one that you actually liked, so that's... Yeah, it was that hard. Right <laughs> <in the> wash. <laughs> Yeah, and I've gone for Ashikoko by Supergrass. Uh-huh. Um, debatably not even the best Supergrass album, but certainly really, really interesting. Yeah, so we'll come back next week with those, and I'd imagine some pretty entertaining next time. Cool. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.